morning. Welcome to Redeemer. Um, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3. going to be in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13 this morning. Before we read that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we think this morning about your church and why we stress the importance of the local church, I pray that you would impress on our hearts the gospel. We would see this morning that the gospel is central to the church and the church is central, should be central, to the life of the believer. And God, um, I pray that that would have just huge implications for the way we live our lives. Well, it does have huge implications for the way we live our lives, but I pray that that would be born out and lived out, that we would live our lives for the sake of the gospel as displayed in the church. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You know, since moving here about three years ago and becoming part of Redeemer Church, I've had several conversations with people about how different this church is from other churches. One of the biggest differences people express is the importance we place on the value and necessity of the local church in the life of the believer. Now, of course, almost all Christians would say that the local church is important, right? Almost all Christians would say, well, yeah, of course the church is important. But many people would have a hard time uh, explaining why it is important. So I ask you, why is the local church important? Why do we stress the importance of the local church? Is it because it provides support for church members in times of crisis? Is it because it provides accountability and discipleship? Is it important because it satisfies some kind of inherent need we all have for fellowship and community? Is it important because we get to observe the ordinances of the Lord's Supper, like we're going to do today, or baptism? Yes. All of these things are true and good and important. But I don't think any of those things really get at the deepest reason why we stress the importance of the local church. You see, in our sinful condition, we have a tendency, even as believers, to miss the big picture of the local church. We turn the local church into something we can use for our own benefit, don't we? Perhaps the church is a good place to find a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a spouse Perhaps the church is a good place for me to sing or to play an instrument in front of other people. Or maybe they'll even let me teach one day so I can show off my biblical knowledge and hermeneutical skill. Maybe I'll just show up to church on Sundays and to community group and LTG so I can feel like I'm really growing spiritually. But I'm not really concerned about the spiritual state of other people or really investing in people's lives. Far too often, Christians end up being leeches on the jugular vein of the church rather than finding their place in the body and serving to build up that body. For many Christians, the local church is an afterthought. 
It's something that can be joined whenever we want and can be left behind when it ceases to fulfill our perceived needs. Many people think the church is just an organization, an institution like a university or a country club, and my participation in it is really quite optional. This is something we are all prone to do because we're all sinners and inherently selfish. But this is something we want to guard against at Redeemer. But how do we guard against it? How do we remind ourselves that there's much more to the local church? We start by reminding ourselves why the church is important. So here's my point this morning. I'm going to give you the point up front, and then we're going to hopefully see it from Ephesians chapter 3. We stress the importance of the local church because the local church makes the gospel visible. Say that again. We stress the importance of the local church because the local church makes the gospel visible. If we want to get a right understanding of the church, one of the best books for us to read is the letter that Paul wrote to the churches in Ephesus, the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians gives us some of the highest and most profound teaching on the church anywhere in Scripture. In chapter 1, Paul reminds his readers of all the spiritual benefits that are found in Christ. We've been chosen before the foundation of the world, he says. We will be blameless before God. We have been predestined for adoption. We have redemption through the blood of Christ. We have the forgiveness of sins, and we have been lavished with His grace. We have obtained an inheritance. We have been sealed with the Holy Spirit, which is the guarantee of our resurrection. We can be sure that we will be raised because Christ was raised from the dead and was seated with God in the heavenly places and now rules and reigns over His church with all authority and power. That's Ephesians chapter 1. In chapter 2, Paul reminds the Ephesians that all of these blessings in Christ are totally undeserved. We used to be dead in our sins. We were following the course of the world. We were enemies of God and friends of the evil one. But God, being rich in mercy, saved us by making us alive and seating us with Christ in the heavenly places. And God has done this by sending Christ to die as an atoning sacrifice on our behalf. We have been redeemed by Christ and are now brought together under His Lordship and are being built up as His body. This is the church. And this brings us to chapter 3. Let's pick it up in chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone 
What is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. In verse 1, Paul tells us two things. He says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. First, he tells us he is a prisoner. Now, where is he a prisoner? Well, we're not totally certain, but he probably wrote this letter while he was in Rome, while he was in prison in Rome toward the end of his life. This imprisonment is described at the end of the book of Acts. In fact, when the book of Acts ends, Paul is still in prison awaiting his trial before Caesar. Legend tells us that Paul was eventually released but that a few years later he was imprisoned again and eventually martyred under the persecution of Nero. So Paul is not referring to himself as some kind of spiritual or hypothetical prisoner here. He's an actual prisoner in an actual prison. And he's in prison for preaching and promoting the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Paul also tells us that he is in prison on behalf of the Gentiles. Now, Paul is about to tell us what that means, but notice the hyphen after the word Gentiles. Most of you, if you have an ESV translation, it says, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. There's that line right there. Paul has a tendency to start a thought and then break off into a side thought halfway through his sentence. He does this all the time in his letters. He does this in order to offer more clarification on what he's just said. This is what he does. He says he's in prison on behalf of the Gentiles. And then if you skip down to verse 13, the last verse that we read, you can see that he finishes this initial thought with the words, I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. So if we take out verses 2 through 12 and we smash verses 1 and 13 together, we have really one coherent thought. It would go like this. I, Paul a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you, Gentiles, I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Now that's a coherent thought. It's a true statement, and it's encouragement that Paul gives. But we can't understand that point unless we unpack what's in the middle, right? He says... I'm suffering on behalf of you Gentiles, but don't lose heart. Now, why should they not lose heart? We have to look at verses 2 through 12 to figure that out. But we're going to come back to this idea of not losing heart. So that's why I'm mentioning it now. Because that really is probably the main point of this passage. Don't lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. But if we're going to understand why they should not lose heart, we have to understand what Paul talks about in the middle. And what he talks about in the middle is the revealing of the mystery of Christ. The mystery of Christ revealed. Verses 2 through 6. Paul assures his readers in verse 2 that he has received revelation from God. Contained in this revelation 
is what he calls the mystery of Christ. In verse 6, he tells us exactly what this mystery is. It is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So there's this mystery that Paul is now making known. And the mystery is that the Gentiles are included in all the promises of God. Now, why is this a mystery? He tells us it was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to God's holy apostles and prophets. What he means is that when we read the Old Testament, we see that God dealt primarily with Israel, right? The covenant that God made with his people was open to Gentiles, but by and large only included Jews. The entire covenantal system, which included feasts, festivals, offerings, circumcision, uh, sacrifices, civil law, ceremonial washings, and all the rest, were given to Israel in order to set them apart from pagan Gentile nations. Okay, Being a Jew was a way of life. It encompassed every aspect of life. When it came to living life day to day, there was no distinction between the secular and the sacred in the life of the Jew because the system that God had put in place reached into every area of their life. Everything they did, their job, the way they, um, the way they ate, the way they drank, the way they worked, all of it, the way they did family, it was all part of the system. The system that God put in place impacted everything about being a Jew. And they did it so that they would look different from the pagan nations around them. Now, if a Gentile wanted to worship the God of the Jews, they had a huge cultural barrier to overcome. Not only did they have to become circumcised, which was a feat in itself, they had to adhere to the actual entire system, right? This meant that the vast majority of Gentiles in the Old Testament had no desire to follow the God of the Jews. In fact, there was a deep and abiding hatred between most Jews and Gentiles. But Paul tells us in verse 6 that the Gentiles are now fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promises of God in Christ Jesus. Now, how did this happen? Well, he's already told us in chapter 2. Look in chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you, he's talking to Gentiles, you Gentiles were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross." thereby killing the hostility. So how did the Gentiles come to be included in the promises of God? Because when Jesus died on the cross, 
and shed his blood, he was making a new covenant, right? And this new covenant would not be expressed in commandments and ordinances and feasts and festivals and a sacrificial system because Christ was himself the final atoning sacrifice for the sins of his people. In his death, he destroyed all of the hostility between Jews and Gentiles and left the door wide open for anyone and everyone to come to God through faith in him. All of the cultural barriers that separated Jews and Gentiles were abolished. And they are now free to come together as one new man and have peace where there was once only hostility. This is the mystery that Paul is revealing. The mystery of Christ is that this has happened. And the Gentiles are now free. They are welcome into God's family. This was why Paul was in prison on behalf of the Gentiles. This was the message that would eventually get him killed. This is the gospel. If we have grown up in church, we've probably heard this so much that we forget just how revolutionary it was for Paul to preach it. You know, there was a reason why Paul and most of the early apostles were killed for their faith. They were preaching a gospel that if it were to be believed, changed everything about a person's life. Many Jews rejected the gospel because it made room for unclean, paganized Gentiles. Many Gentiles rejected the gospel because it required them to submit to a Jewish rabbi that seemed to only cause trouble and division among his own people, not to mention he was killed. But to be a disciple of this man was to admit that all that they had previously known was wrong and to submit to his authority and acknowledge him as Lord. And this gospel is as true today and is as revolutionary today as it was then. To follow Christ means the same for us today. You know, when I talk to people about Christ or when I share the gospel with people, and this has been so clear to me over the past few years. I've had so many conversations with people at work, um, many of whom are, are openly hostile to Christianity. Not necessarily to me, but when it comes down to the truth of Christ, they want nothing to do with it. But as I share the gospel, you can see the connections that they're making, right? They're making this connection like, okay, if what you're saying is true, then I must believe it. And if I believe this, that means everything about me has to change. And then that's where the barrier goes up, right? Because they, they know that Christ demands everything. That means they have to stop sleeping with their boyfriend or their girlfriend. That means they can't do what they've always done. They can't spend their money the way they've always spent it. If Christ is who he says he was, he demands everything. He infiltrates every area of their life, and they don't want it. The gospel is just as revolutionary today as it was then. Many people are turned off to Christ because of what it will cost them to become one of his disciples. But following Christ doesn't just include costs and sacrifices. It also includes glorious riches. 
verses 7 through 9, Paul tells us about the riches of Christ enjoyed. In verse 7, Paul identifies himself as a minister of this gospel. He was given this gift of ministry through the grace and powerful working of God. Even though there was no one more undeserving than him being a persecutor of the church, God chose to save him and appoint him to this ministry. In verse 8, Paul has, has been called by God to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. But what does he mean that Christ's riches are unsearchable? What does this term mean? We'll look ahead to verse 14. Chapter 3, verse 14 says this, for, I, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So I take this to mean that to know the unsearchable riches of Christ is to be spiritually strengthened. The riches we experience in Christ are always spiritual riches. We have strength in our inner being. We are rooted and grounded in love for Christ and for one another. We comprehend, Paul says, with all the saints. Notice the corporate nature of that. We're doing this together. We're comprehending with all the saints the breadth, the length, the height, the depth of the love of Christ. And we are filled with all the fullness of God. That is what it means to preach these unsearchable riches. That is why these riches are unsearchable, because we actually have God's Spirit dwelling within us. And that never gets old. The riches of God in Christ are unsearchable. They are beyond finding out. We will never exhaust them. Remember who Paul is writing to. The churches in Ephesus, the believers in Ephesus. Paul is himself in prison and there's about to be a massive persecution. They're probably experiencing persecution at this time. Paul is strengthening them, reminding them of the unsearchable riches of Christ so that they can persevere and be encouraged under persecution. So Paul is bringing to light this gospel. Verse 9. This gospel of the Gentiles, that, that the Gentiles are now included through the blood of Christ, they are experiencing the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul is bringing this to light, he tells us, in verse 9, for everyone, he's making known what is the plan of the mystery that was hidden for ages. Remember what this mystery is. The Gentiles are included in the promises of God. Paul says that his mission is to bring this mystery to light so that everyone can see it. This is key. He wants Jews and Gentiles to see this gospel as true and glorious so that they might treasure Christ as their Messiah and worship the one true God who created all things, here we see that this mystery, this gospel that unites Jews and Gentiles is supposed to be made visible. This was Paul's mission. Bring it to light. It does not come about in darkness. 
It is accompanied by light. Just as God called light out of darkness at creation, so God's plan to unite Jews and Gentiles under the Lordship of Christ is a supernatural creation. This is God's work. Paul is bringing it to light. He's making it visible. He wants everyone to see this, okay? This gospel is being made visible, which brings us to verses 10 through 13. The gospel of Christ visible. In verse 10, we have the words, so that. And we should understand those words to indicate purpose and intentionality. Okay? So there's a purpose here. There's an intention behind what Paul is saying. Paul tells us that God is bringing his eternal plan to light so that the church might put God's manifold wisdom on display to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So he's already told us he's bringing it to light for everyone to see, Jews and Gentiles. And here he says, through the church, this gospel is being made visible not only to Jews and Gentiles, but also to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, who are these rulers and authorities in the heavenly places? What do these terms mean? Well, we see these same terms used in chapter 1, verse 20, where Paul tells us that Christ was raised from the dead and seated in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. We see these same terms used again in chapter 6, verse 12, where Paul tells us to be strong in the Lord, to put on the whole armor of God, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So I take this to mean that the rulers and authorities in chapter 3 are the same as they are in chapters 1 and 6, which primarily refer to Satan and his demonic forces in the heavenly realms. So he says that Christ is now, or this gospel, is made known in the church in order to put God's wisdom on display for Jews, for Gentiles, and for the demonic forces in the heavenly places. So, what is the significance of this? It means that Paul is saying that through the church, the wisdom of God is put on display. It's put on display for Jews, so that when they see their fellow Jews worshiping their Messiah along un alongside unclean, uncircumcised Gentiles, they would stand in amazement at God's eternal plan and come to embrace Christ as their Messiah. Because who could ever have thought that this was God's plan? It's put on display for Gentiles so that when they see their fellow Gentiles worshiping and praying and eating with Jews, they will see that the dividing wall of ritual and ceremony has been broken and they are now included in all the covenants and promises of God. But it's also put on display so that even the demonic beings in the heavenly realms can see the glorious power of the gospel in uniting people together that should not love one another. But as far as we know, these demonic forces cannot be redeemed. They will not be redeemed. They will not see the church as something beautiful 
and attractive. Instead, the wisdom of God shines forth from the church as a proclamation that their fate is sealed. For Satan and his hosts, the end is near. The gospel has triumphed, and nothing, not even the gates of hell, can prevail against the bride of Christ. This means that when we gather together on Sundays and in our community groups and our life transformation groups, we remind each other of the gospel and we encourage one another to persevere in the faith. We are participating in something cosmic. We are doing much more than what we see. We are declaring to the demonic powers, your, say, your fate is sealed. You are defeated. Christ is victorious. He has risen, and we are His. We are proclaiming the goodness of God, the glory of the cross, and the judgment of the evil one. When church gathers, it's a cosmic event. And this, Paul tells us in verse 11, is all part of God's eternal plan. You see, the church is not some kind of divine afterthought. It wasn't plan B after the Old Testament idea didn't work out. It wasn't like God had Israel and then they just failed and failed and failed and God's like, oh, uh, the church, let's try the church. Jesus, <laughs> you're up, right? Um, we're going to start the church now and see, see how that works. No, Paul tells us this was all planned and purposed by God. When you read Romans chapters 9 through 11, you see it most clearly how this interplay between Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles are supposed to make Jews jealous for their Messiah so that they come back into the fold. This was all part of God's plan. You get to the end of verse 11 in Romans and, and Paul's like, he just explodes in worship. Oh, the depth of the wisdom and riches and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor? Because when you look at this plan, you see how it's worked out, and you see how Paul explains it. You think, who could have known this? It's the wisdom of God on display in the church. So what does this mean for us? Or, to answer the original question, why do we stress the importance of the local church? We stress the importance of the local church because God has decided to put His wisdom on display most fully and most gloriously in the church. He has done this by sending His Son to redeem people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation and to gather them together into local communities so that they might love one another and serve one another and give themselves to one another as they worship their risen and exalted Savior, Jesus Christ. That is why we stress the importance of the local church. It is central to the life of the believer. The gospel is displayed most fully, most completely in the local church. This puts God's wisdom on display for all of God's creation. So, my question is, how do you treat the local church? 
How do you view the local church? Is it something you can take or leave? Is it simply an organization that exists to meet our needs? Do you treat the bride of Christ like a prostitute that you can just throw money at and then expect her to conform to your every wish? And then when she ceases to be of use to you, or if the commitment on your end becomes too great, cut tail and run? How do you view the church? Perhaps some of us need to join a local church. Perhaps we just need to stop we need, we need to stop just attending and just soaking and just getting and start committing and start giving and start sacrificing. Perhaps some of you need to leave the church that you're involved in. If you're involved in an unbiblical church, a church that is not teaching the gospel, a church that rejects the gospel. Or maybe some of you are sitting here thinking, okay, Caleb, I get it. The church is important. In fact, I see that it's cosmically important. But, I mean, really, I've got my own life to live, right? I've got things that I want to do. I've got all this stuff that I want to do, places I want to live, things I want to experience. So can't I just show up? I mean, can I just show up to church on Sundays or community group? Can't I just live my own life over here and then the church, which is over here, just try to, try to fit it in, right? I have all this stuff going on, so then I have the church just sort of fit it in around all the things I want to do. It's just one more compartment to my life, and it's really quite optional. My answer to that kind of thinking is to point you back to what Paul says in verses 1 and 13. This is why I brought it up at the beginning. He says in verse 1, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, verse 13, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Now what had Paul suffered for them? Here's Paul. He's at the end of his life, close to the end of his life. And he says, don't lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. He's just told us this glorious truth about the gospel and the church. And then he says, so don't lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. Now what had Paul suffered? Well, he was in prison, but he tells us more in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, are you servants of Christ? Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless being, beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I was adrift at sea. 
and on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Don't lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. So my answer to the question, I have my own life. Can I just live my own life? Can I just fit the local church in? Paul didn't just fit the church in. He gets to the end of his life and he says, all of that stuff, the beatings and the imprisonments and the shipwrecks and the danger and the danger and the danger and the danger, it was all worth it. It was all worth it for your glory. Your glory. He poured out his life to the end of his days. Suffered, 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 suffered while all the while proclaiming the unsearchable riches that are found in Christ. And he did it for their glory. So I ask you, why do you want to just fit it in? Don't you want this? Don't you want to get to the end of your life and to look back and to say it was all worth it? It was all worth it. I didn't live where I wanted to live. I didn't get the degree I wanted to get. I, I, maybe I didn't even marry the person that I thought I wanted to marry. Maybe all the stuff I wanted to do didn't work out the way I wanted, but it was all worth it. All worth it. For the good and the glory of others. For the glory of God. For the good of others. Put on display in the local church. So perhaps the application for most of us is to remind ourselves of the gospel that unites us. The same gospel that is the power of God for salvation is the same gospel that has brought us together and is the source of our love for one another and worship toward God. We're going to have the Lord's Supper here in just a couple minutes. And what better way to proclaim the gospel, to make the gospel visible than right here? the body and blood of Christ, and to do it together so that we can comprehend with all the saints the height, the depth, the breadth, the length, and the love of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we live such shallow lives. I pray that we would not live shallow lives. I pray that we would live lives poured out for the sake of your church, for the good of others, and for the glory of Christ. Lord, so often when we think about that, we think about doing big things. We think about being a part of a church that is famous, or being a part of a church that is, that is just huge, and doing having big events and and being well known by so many people, but God, 
pray that we would be content with no one ever knowing our names. We would be content, God, with, with getting no recognition for anything that we do. That we would be willing to give up all of the praise of men. We'd be willing to sacrifice all of that so that your church would be built up and that Christ would be honored and that others would be benefited. God, give us that heart. Give us the heart of the Apostle Paul. Fill us with your spirit now as we observe this Lord's Supper, and I pray that it would strengthen us in our inner being. It's in Christ's name. Amen.